Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have now reached 30,000 feet. You may now use all your electronic devices, including your laptop. This uh, series called Altitude Adjustment, that your attitude determines your altitude, and we're going to skip around a little bit. Uh, we're going to cover it all, uh, but at the, in the coming weeks, we're actually going to address kind of chronologically the verses that should be today, uh, and that is Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 18. It talks about prayer and fasting, and uh, this year we're going to participate along with uh, many of the four square churches all across our country, kicking off 2021 uh, with 21 days of prayer and fasting. And so uh, I'm going to be teaching on that and I'm going to be sharing about that, but we're going to come back to that in the coming weeks. And instead we're going to skip ahead right now into chapter 6 verses 19 through 34. And I just want us to take a second and prepare our hearts for what God wants to to speak to us. Because I think today will be a healing day for many. Lord, we, um, we just present ourselves to you. We open ourselves up. We avail ourselves to you in our mind and in our soul, Lord. And would you just speak to us? Would you bring about a peace that your word says in Philippians that surpasses all understanding? And, uh, and Lord, would today be a transformational day that we would have new eyes to see this world that we live in? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a pilot that was practicing uh, high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter, and uh, she turned the controls for, uh, for what she thought was going to be a steep ascent and instead flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down, and that's kind of how it is, isn't it, in life? Not, not exactly that everyone is just crashing, you know, although there is, it seems, a lot of that going on. But most of us as individuals, and really the world as a whole, I think what we're finding is that we're going about life just at these breakneck speeds, and we're not really sure whether or not we're flying upside down or right side up. And it's why they're in a plane is the attitude instrument, and uh, and it's why in our own life we have this thing called an attitude, and it's to help us determine whether or not we're flying in the way of the kingdom of God, or is it that we're flying in the ways of the world? The difficulty with this, though, is that oftentimes the ways of Jesus seem upside down to us, right? I mean, that, that's the hard part of this is that uh, the world is one way and the kingdom of God is a different way. And so it feels like, like Jesus's ways are upside down, not the world's. I mean, he says things like, love your enemies, you know, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who wrong you. Hey, watch your anger. All of these things. And we're like, man, it, it, that doesn't, it, that seems difficult. It seems counterintuitive. And if you're looking for uh, an easy message in the Sermon on the Mount, 
uh, it doesn't exist. I've looked. It's, I've, I'm, I've been looking for an easy message, one that would be nice and short and sweet, and it's just not there. And this is the reason why C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, our faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said long ago and then just trying to carry it out. Rather, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his Zoe life into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. The part of you, though, that doesn't like it is the part that is still tin. See, in order to accept the Jesus kingdom, the, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, we've, we've really got to be willing to let go of our own kingdoms, our own ways. And that's hard. It's, it, what, we're, what we've been talking about over the course of the last seven weeks and, and what we're going to continue to talk about, this kind of life is not an easy life. It's why Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow me. That's not an easy task. See, the ways of Jesus are difficult, and, uh, and it goes against really the grain of everything that's inside of us that wants to hold on to the ways of man. And so throughout time, what's happened is God has, has been inviting his people into a different way, into the way of Jesus. And because of that, he's given different kinds of commands, different kinds of instructions that, that at times feel really strange. They, they feel different. They feel countercultural. And so as we get into these verses here, what we're going to find is that Jesus gives a kind of a, a homage or a shout out to, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And, and when he's telling this to these men that are listening to him, these would be good Jewish boys who know this language. They know these commands. They would know the Torah from Deuteronomy 15. And it's, they know what he's talking about. And so what happens, though, is in this command in Deuteronomy 15, it's, it's actually kind of one of those interesting, weird laws that we can't really confirm whether or not they actually ever obeyed. Uh, the nation of Israel does what we often do with what we feel or what we deem to be crazy laws. We kind of ignore them, don't we? I mean, we have those here in the United States. I don't know if you know this. We have some weird laws on the books, things that are, we're technically legally bound to, uh, but we don't do. I mean, did you know that in Connecticut that it's illegal for you, you to sell a pickle that can't bounce on the sidewalk? That's a true thing. That's on the books. It's like, oh, it didn't bounce. Sorry, it's no good. But I'm wondering, what if it does bounce? What do you do with the pickle? Anyways, in Texas, there's a law that actually requires you to notify your victims 24 hours in advance. So if you're going to rob somebody, it's really good and legal for you to let them know that you're going to be doing that. You can't shoot a buffalo from the second story of a hotel here in Texas, in case you were thinking about that. It's illegal to dust any public building with a feather duster. I don't know why. But you can't, oh, and this is going to apply to many of you, you cannot milk a stranger's cow. So keep your hands off of other people's cows. Uh, flirting, here in San Antonio, Texas, flirting with the eyes or hands is illegal, and that's enforceable for both men and women. Did you know that? 
You should be in jail. You know what I'm saying? Um, But here's their weird law. God says that every seven years, I want you to erase all of the debts, that we're going to zero out every account after seven years. It's called the Sabbath year. If somebody owes, some, uh, owes you something after seven years, you, you zero it out. And as a, uh, someone who has a mortgage on a house, I'm okay with this law. This, this seems like something we should implement. But look at what he says in Matthew chapter 6, 22 through 23. And it's, it's going to kind of make sense as he makes this reference back to the Torah. He's gonna make, it's going to make sense as we go on. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, if it's unified, if it's whole, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. In other words, if you see the world as a dark place, if you see the world as an evil place, as a wrong place, it's going to change the way that you see everything in this life. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying fresh eyes, and that's what I'm going to call it, is, is fresh eyes change our perspective of the world. There's two ways to, to see the world. There's the way of darkness, and then there's the way of light. And you could say it like this, that Jesus wants us to have a new perspective, a fresh perspective on the world that we live in. There's a secular theory that gives us this idea of scarcity and abundance. And it's, it's really a secular idea. And in the secular theory, the idea is it's how you view your money, how you view life. But it's really under the uh, um, precedent that you can will yourself to a different way. And we, we don't really believe that. But what we do believe is that our Christ perspective does give us a perspective of the difference between scarcity and abundance. It's possible to look at the world, and it's a a dark way to look at the world, but we can look at the world and essentially see it as a a pie, where there's a portion of it that's that's being divided up, and, and there's a certain amount of parts, and there's only a certain amount that's available to us. Right? If someone gets that job, then that means it's one less job for me. If, uh, if, if somebody gets something good, then it means I'm not going to get something good. If, if somebody you know, gets engaged, then it's just one less person out there on the market. Right? It's, this way of thinking leads us to believe that the world that we live in is a scarce place. That there's, there's just only so much that exists out there. And it's what God was condemning in Deuteronomy 15. He, he's saying, listen, it, God is present. God is, is good. He's here. He's blessing and he's giving favor. The only way that you could ever forgive those kinds of debts is if there's going to be more. If there's going to be an abundance. If there's going to be fruit that comes later on. Here's the way you can often see if you have a scarcity perspective in your life that it's hard to celebrate when other people are blessed. When someone else gets the job, can you say, you know what, I'm so happy for you without thinking in the back of your mind, I wish that was me. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and just say, man, it must be nice, right? 
whatever the case may be, you, maybe you uh, got a new car or you, uh, you were able to get into a house or what, whatever the case, there, there's kind of this sentiment that just somebody comes up and says, well, this, it must be nice to just always be blessed all the time. See, that's a perspective of scarcity, that there's only a limited number of joy and happiness and goodness and blessing and, and we're running out of it in this world and because you got some of it, it means that I didn't. And if you want to know what that scarcity ultimately leads to, it's Antifa. It's, it's a perspective that says, you are blessed, I'm not, I'm going to destroy what you have. The good news is there's another way of seeing the world. It's the way of seeing the world through what we're going to call these fresh eyes, where we see God at work in the midst of our world, where we see that love and joy and peace and grace doesn't come in limited quantities. It comes in abundance, that this world is actually teeming with his goodness, but we have to have eyes to see it, and we have to have a heart to align with what it is that he's doing. So we can genuinely say to the people around us, when something good happens to them, I am so happy for you. you, you that is, so we can give God the credit for his blessing and his favor over people's life. So the question for us is, do we see the world through a perspective of scarcity or abundance? When we, see, when, when we see the world through scarcity, what happens is we begin to live our life out in fear. We're, we're full of fear. But if we're able to embrace a Jesus perspective, if we're able to have an eye full of light, as Jesus talks about, then as Dallas Willard says, then this uh, as the world, if we can see the world as it is God-bathed, then it's this perfectly safe place for us to be, even when it feels unsafe. If we're able to grasp that perspective, if we could just grab hold of that part of life, instead of fear being our dominant voice, we'll actually be able to live a life of peace. And isn't that what we want? We want a life of peace. And Jesus goes on and he begins to explain what this life with fresh eyes actually looks like. And he starts by addressing the way that we treat our stuff. As Americans, we don't really like people getting into the business of our stuff, right? We, it's like, hey, this is my stuff. You leave me alone. You don't control me. But here Jesus is and he's saying to us, let's talk about your stuff. He says in verse 19, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And the definition of treasure, it means an abundance of anything that was held to be conducive to the ornament or comfort of life. So don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does it look like for us to have fresh eyes? To have a perspective of the world that sees God in the world, that, that changes the way that we see the world, so that we operate out of abundance and not scarcity. And, 
And, and then here's what starts to happen. When our perspective changes and we begin to have an a objective understanding of the difference between scarcity and, and, and abundance, when our perspective changes, then what happens is our pursuits change. Our pursuits change. And what we find is we, will, we, we come to this fork in the road, the, 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 this decision where are we going to go after earthly treasures or are we going to go after heavenly treasures? That we're going to pursue one of two things because there's something built in us that we are we love to find hidden treasures. It's, it's why we show our kids the movie Goonies. It's why we love it, and then we remember all of the inappropriate things in it that we didn't remember when we were kids. You know, the, there's something about the hunt. There's something about treasure hunting that just excites us. We are treasure hunters, and we're looking for things in this life that can build our life into something that will add value, that will add worth, that, that brings goodness to it, that, that it brings an enjoyment in this world around us. But the question for us is, what type of treasures are we searching for? He says that there's two types. You can search for treasure that's on earth or treasure that's an example of heaven. And here's what he means. He kind of defines it for us. He says, earthly treasure have two things in common. They all wear out. They all wear out. And he wants us to wrestle with this a little bit, right? Where am I putting my life? What am I building my life into? Have you ever purchased anything just brand new and you're like, I, I want to keep it like brand new forever? It's impossible, eventually it's going to wear out. You may be able to prolong the life of it, but it will wear out. You may have a new couch. Eventually, the springs are going to go out in the couch, and it's going to be uncomfortable for you. And Jesus says, uh, I, I want you to wrestle with this idea that everything that we have on earth will wear out. Moths or rusts are going to destroy it. It will get thrown into recycling or get thrown into the trash bin at some point. And he says the second thing is it might just get stolen. Either way, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. What we're really looking for, though, in life, in, in our life, is security and pleasure, isn't it? We want our life to be enjoyable. We want our life to be safe. But don't you think that Security and pleasure is really kind of just setting our bar pretty low. C.S. Lewis kind of defines setting our bar low like this. He says, you're, con you're content on making mud pies in the ghetto when a vacation at the sea is being offered to you. He's saying long for more. Long for more than just security and pleasure. And, he call, and Jesus calls it heavenly treasure. The Bible refers to many ways that Christians can store up treasures in, heavens or, in heaven or rewards, right? Including faithfully enduring persecution, Matthew chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 4. It doesn't sound all that rewarding, you know, faithfully enduring persecution. Yay! Loving your enemies, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. We talked about that. Praying in secret. We're going to talk about that. It's in the previous verses of this chapter. 
serving the Lord and his people in Matthew chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians 3. In these few examples, what we see is that rewards are also associated with living and loving like Jesus. In Deuteronomy 32.9, it says that God's portion, that God's treasure is people. God treasures people. For us to build a life that's, that's grounded on the treasures, not of this earth, but treasures of heaven, is to build a life around loving him and loving his people. It's learning to, to live in his presence and enjoy his presence, not just when we get there someday, but that we could actually enjoy it right now. Interestingly, we never heard Jesus say, now go get to work. But what we do hear Jesus say is, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. It's almost like Jesus is this experienced doctor who can diagnose the source of our ailment. He knows we always have to look at the heart. It always comes back to the heart. Not what we do or don't do. It's what's going on in our heart. And Jesus connected his command to stop laying up earthly treasures and store up treasures that are in heaven to the heart. And he knows that, we value, that what we value is reflected in how we live. Jesus goes on in the passage in Matthew 6. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And some of your translations will say mammon. Mammon was this Aramaic term that Jesus spoke, and when Matthew translates it from Aramaic into Greek, he actually leaves it as the word mammon. Why did he do this? Well, presumably because there was such a connotation that comes with that word. There's so much that surrounds it. It, it, just, it didn't mean just money. It meant possessions. It, it meant the, the things that we often bow down to in this life, in this world. The things that we look for purpose from. We kind of make the same point here in America where we say things like the almighty dollar. Like we're bowing down to it like the almighty God. And Jesus' point is that we always serve the thing that we pursue so our perspective begins to shape our pursuit, and our pursuit eventually becomes our master. And everybody has a master. There's no such thing as a masterless human being. We follow something. We bow down to something. Our master will lead us to one of two places, either lead you into prison or it will lead you into freedom. But it will do one of those two things. And so Jesus says, if you have a perspective of this world, if you see the world through the lens of scarcity, all you're going to do is start chasing treasures that you can touch and see because you think that it will add security and pleasure to your life. And you're going to chase after money because you feel like it's going to do something for you and it's going to become your master and you're going to bow down to it and you're going to go and worship it and you're going to lose out on the greater things of this life. And you're like, well, I don't worship money. And I would just press on us just a little bit. If I could just touch on some of our nerves. It's, you, know, you, you may not actually build an altar to money, but I wonder what we do with our time in order 
to get that money? How much of our life is consumed with this, this pursuit of the money and how much of our time is spent in the pursuit of our relationship with God? Now, this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying don't save money. He's not saying don't have a retirement. He's not saying don't plan out your financial future. What he is saying is don't put your trust in your savings. Don't put your trust in your retirement and don't put your trust in your planning because he's like, if you begin to do that, then I'll throw another 2008 at you. Right, because for, for many in 2008, it was this, this huge crash. And what that revealed was, for people was that, that they've trusted in the wrong things. Jesus isn't against any of those things. He just simply doesn't want us to, he wants us to shift our perspective and, and see the world and, and see everything that we're about through the light eyes, the, uh, the fresh eyes of Jesus. If you're going, well, Jesus, that's really interesting, that's, that's great, but what do we do with this? He's like, I'm so glad you asked. Because he goes on in verse 25, he says, Therefore, I tell you, in other words, in light of a different perspective that leads to a different pursuit, that leads to a different master, this is what he's telling us. He's saying, do not be anxious about your life, what, will, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, he will, how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. As we read some of this stuff, we're like, but Jesus, are you paying attention? Are you watching the news? There's a lot of things that we can be worried about in this world. There's a lot of things that, are, that cause our hearts to go, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. And here's what some people are worried about. They're worried about things like their health. Is my health going to hold up? Our finances, is it going to work out? What's the economy going to be like in the future? It causes worry in people's lives, whether it be stress from work or stress from school or stress from our relationships or the death of a loved one, that there's all of these things and we hear about them and we're saying, Jesus, don't you recognize everything that's going on in, in Jesus' teaching? There's this reality that are we supposed to just not worry? We're supposed to just put it on a list, on a refrigerator, and just mark it off every day and say, today I'm not going to worry. Is it that simple? Is it that easy? See, to worry is to, to be literally divided, to be pulled apart in two different directions. It's in opposition to what Jesus talked about in having a healthy eye. 
Because a healthy eye is unified. It sees God and it, and it changes the way that we begin to see the world. It sees him in everything, and, and a worried eye is pulled into different directions. Whether you like her or don't like her, Joyce Meyer says it like this. Worry is putting a down payment on a problem that you never had. Jesus is teaching that this progression. He's saying your perspective shapes your pursuit, and it defines your master, and your master will always define the health of your soul. What he wants to teach us is how to live with what Edwin Freeman called a non-anxious presence. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Not this kind of pie in the sky, everything's just going to turn out okay mentality, but a settled conviction that even in the storms, and can we all agree 2020 has been a, literally been a lot of storms, and spiritually been a lot of storms and emotionally and it's just been a crazy year that even in the midst of those storms and the trials of life that my God is present and my God is here. That through, that even though the wrong seems often so strong that he is, Friedman goes on to say, is the ruler yet. That what worry often expresses is not the conviction that God, though the wrong seems also strong, you are the ruler yet. What worry really is, is a conviction that I need to control everything around me. And I think what we're finding is that we really don't have very much control over our lives. I'll just illustrate it kind of with this one simple point that every person, every person in this room, everyone watching online could get one phone call and it could change your life forever. How much control do we really have? What Jesus wants to do in this passage is, is not, and I want you to hear, he's not trying to give us more reason to worry. What he actually wants to do is point out how ridiculous worry actually is. And so he says, here's what I want you to do. If you're feeling worried, here's the Jesus way of, a, of freeing your life from worry. He says in verse 26, why don't you just look at the birds of the air? Why don't you go outside for a few seconds? The wind's blowing in some cool air. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And, and, he, and I want you to go outside, and I want you to check them out. What Jesus is not saying is just sit on your hands and hope for the best. You know, let's just hunker down, white-knuckle this thing, and maybe we'll get to heaven someday. Now, Jesus couldn't have picked a busier animal. Birds work, and they work hard, and they're all over the place. They just don't worry. They're too dumb to worry. But interestingly, we're too smart to trust, right? Jesus is, is so intuitive here. He, he knows that when we fail to see God in the world and we see the world as a world of scarcity rather than abundance, what it begins to do is it shapes our souls. And in verse 28, it says, consider the lilies of the field. So, you know, go watch the birds and go look at the, the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not working so hard that they can look so beautiful. What's going on? The fertilizer of the heavenly father is causing them to bloom into something absolutely gorgeous. So he's saying, 
So what he's talking about here is stop worrying about the way that you look. <laughs> Why do you spend so much time figuring out what it is that you're going to wear today? You know, how, how much worry, how much have you worried about your hairline and how much of that worry has actually caused your hair to grow? It hasn't. I can tell you that. I've worried about it and it, it doesn't grow through worry. How much uh, in worrying about your weight have you lost weight? It, it, it doesn't happen through worry. We can say, I wish I was a, a little bit taller. Wishing you were taller doesn't actually make you grow. Jesus is teaching this practical illustration with these two things in saying worry is unnecessary. Your God knows what you need, he says. You have more value than the lilies of the field. He's taking care of your needs. He's going to care for you. Worry is so unhelpful. And, and Jesus then ends with verse 34 by saying, listen, tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. So don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. It's as though he's saying, man, you know what? Tomorrow's going to be terrible. It's, it could be terrible tomorrow, but you can't do anything about it today. Thanks for the encouragement, Jesus. You know, we don't know what, to, I was telling the dream team on Friday night, I, I said, you know, I talked to a lot of people who are just saying, I just want to get through 2020. Can we just get through this and we'll just white knuckle it for the next month and a half and, and then it'll be over and then we can get into 2021. It'll be so much better. But what if it's not? What if 2021 is worse than 2020? Well, it doesn't really matter because there's nothing we can do about that today. What he's really saying is, how is, is worrying about what tomorrow is going to be working out for you? And Corey Ten Boom said it like this. She said, uh, worry does not empty tomorrow of its trouble. It empties today of its strength. You want to know why people are depressed and why people are living in despair and hopeless in this world? It's because they are worrying about what the future is going to look like. It's emptying them of their strength to even press on. And Friedman says it like this. He says, a major criterion for judging the anxiety level of any society is the loss of its capacity to be playful. So we lose our capacity for strength, is what Corey Tim Boom says. And then Friedman says, we lose our capacity for joy. Jesus says, how's that working out for you? It's not productive. So he says, how about this? How about instead of worry, you shape your life around this settled confidence that in good seasons and in the bad, in the sunshine and in the rain, on the mountaintop and in the valley, my God is present. He knows what I need. He's my good shepherd, even when it's painful. What are my other options, right? To put my hope into the things of this world, into the culture of this world. And Jesus is saying, I want you to shape your lives around things that are in heaven, not of this earth. The solution is not simply stop worrying. 
It's actually to just redirect our lives and our vision and our mind as apprentices of Jesus to be Christ followers in the midst of these storms. To a proper heart that lends us to a different pursuit, that leads us to a different master that eventually shapes a different kind of soul. If you figure your life to genuinely aim at the kingdom, like to love God and to love the people that you come into contact with, the effective reign of Jesus in your life, in your home, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace, if you shape your life around that, the things that you need to survive will actually deliver themselves to you. What does a life of non-anxious presence look like? It means that we move from being anxious, pulled into multiple different directions, to attentive. Attentive to his voice, attentive to his will for our life. The reality is that an unshakable life is built on an immovable kingdom. That Jesus invites us to build our lives on that such kingdom. So here's what we do. We step back and we remember that this is a God-bathed world. That he's the Lord, he's the shepherd, and he's the king. It doesn't mean that everything is just going to be like a genie in a bottle. We just rub the genie and, or the pinata in the sky. We just hit it the right way and everything turns out the way that we hope it will. It doesn't. But it means that he's president and it means that he's walking with us. It means that he's good even in the valley of the shadow of death. When we can say, God, I see you in this world, it changes the world that we see and we give him space to move and to work into our lives and to bring life into death. It's a disposition, not of control, but of trust. Let's pray.